This episode is supported by Bento Box and Clover. There's no doubt that running a restaurant is a lot of hard work. Fortunately, Bento Box and Clover are now working together to provide restaurants with the technology they need. Bento Box is an all-in-one platform for websites, online ordering, and marketing tools. Clover provides world-class point-of-sale and payment solutions. Integrating the two helps restaurants streamline operations and deliver an even better guest experience. Bento Box and Clover, the right recipe for hospitality. Visit getbento.com better for more info. You know, there's just so many different things that go into the costing of a meal, not just how much the food costs. You know, when people walk in, they say, oh, I could buy that steak and go and grill it for $14. Why is it $38? Because <laughs> I got 40 employees and I got this giant restaurant that cost a million dollars to build. So that's why. <laughs> but we won't be selling any $38 steaks. There'll be You're listening to Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. I'm Katie Osuna. In this episode, we're going back into the archives to an episode we released in November of 2019, the first episode of our second season called Value of a Meal with Kin Restaurant. When we as a team at Copper and Heat were talking about the different topics we wanted to explore around craft and value, the topic of the perceived value of eating at a restaurant came up a lot. Because everybody's talking about that right now. With inflation and the pandemic and more people leaving the restaurant industry, it seems like we couldn't not talk about it. And then we remembered that we did this episode already with the folks from Kin Restaurant in Boise, Idaho. These conversations I had were in 2019, pre-pandemic. The folks from Kin had closed their first restaurant, State & Lemp, and were still in the process of building out their new restaurant space. And they were set to open in March of 2020. I'll pop back in a little bit later to give a little bit more updates about Kin, but without further ado, here we go. I wish I had printed up a picture of you so I can see you in front of me. This is my friend Michelle. My name is Michelle Kwok. Boise has a special place in my heart because it's where I'm from. I even got the Idaho State outline tattooed on my arm. So, needless to say, I'm a fan. But four years ago, my partner Ricardo and I moved away from Boise because we wanted to have the experiences only a big city could bring, like working at a three Michelin star restaurant. So, back to my friend Michelle. I was ready to leave fine dining and was looking for something a little bit a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more rustic. And boy, is Boise it. Boise is like way quieter, way more rustic. She and I worked together before I left Boise, and she kind of went the opposite direction. So I was there in New York for a few years. The first restaurant was called Brayburn Restaurant, and then I went to Jean-Georges. And then I was at La Bernadette for a couple months doing a stage. And then after that is when I went to 11 Madison Park and was there for a little shy of two years. Michelle was killing it, working at all these big name institutions in the New York culinary world. 
But right before she was going to start a new job in New York, her husband Ron got a job offer in Boise. So they went out to visit. So we come out here December or January of eight years ago. And we're here for 24 hours. When we leave Boise, Ron's like, oh, I I love the city. I love the company. I want to go back there. I'm like, were we just in the same town? Like I, when our airplane took off, I thought I would never set foot here again. But then they moved to Boise. We came out here and I cried. I thought this place is so small. The food scene definitely saddened my heart a little bit, but it, it, it also forced me to start cooking. And back then, Boise's food scene was a little monotone. Boise's not short of pizza shops. It's not short of traditional steakhouses, taco shops, and uh, pub food. That's for sure. But there was one restaurant popping up that was trying to do things differently. Yeah, $80,000 to open. And my partner and I did 100% of the work ourselves with, you know, the help of friends and family. This is Ramey. My name is Ramey McManus from Kin Restaurant in Boise, Idaho. He's one of the owners of a new restaurant in Boise called Kin. But five years ago, him and his partner Jay were opening State and Lemp. Ramey and Jay really bootstrapped the opening of State and Lemp with a minimal budget and a lot of help. They didn't even have me cook for two or three weeks, and they didn't even know if I could. Including who they hired for their chef to cuisine, Chris. My name is Chris Kamori. I was the former chef of a restaurant called State and Lemp, and now I'm going to be the chef and co-owner of a place called Kin. I was new in town. I didn't really know many restaurants and, and food industry people, and probably four or five people at the market told me about, are you interested in doing more cooking? There's this new place opening up. And uh, so I rode, rode my bike over and met Jane Ramey. And pretty much the next day I was putting carpet in the place. It was pretty clear to everyone in the local Boise food scene that State and Lemp was going to be different. There weren't really any other restaurants like it. And at the time when we opened, there weren't many, or if any, tasting menu brick and mortar spots open. The menu theme changed every month. The team was using local ingredients, modern plating, and interesting techniques across the five to seven dishes that were on each menu. Though the style of dining was happening in bigger cities across the U.S., it was really new to Boise, which distinguished them from others for sure, but also caused a lot of challenges in the beginning. Opening State Lent, the conversation about menu pricing was really what, what will the public tolerate? And we kind of fell on that that $100 mark. And then we figured out what's the difference between 100 and 105. So the price difference of what we were doing versus the other restaurants in town was, was quite dramatic when you just saw it as like a one-time price. When they wrote the first article about us, you know, new restaurant opens, menu is $100 a person. You know, there was all sorts of people saying, oh, nobody can do that. No, you're going to fail within two months. I was like... <laughs> That's fine. I failed at a lot of different things in my life. I don't know if I was more afraid of success or failure at that point. People tell you that. You're kind of like, all right, fuck it. Like, let's just do whatever we want then. Go guns blazing. People were noticing. They were written about in magazines and the newspaper because they were really new. Though some people were put off by the idea or didn't necessarily understand what it was, it was really exciting to others, like my friend Michelle. I just took a break um, from working and also wanted to get back into cooking. I took a trip to Korea for, I don't know, a month. Oh, yeah, you were there. 
Michelle and I worked together at a nonprofit doing food service job training for refugees. We would do special catering and fundraising events, and Michelle would always make these beautiful pastry creations. And about a year after I started working at the nonprofit, Michelle left. Oh, yeah, and we took a trip together to visit her family in Seoul, South Korea. I came back from that trip, was wrestling through what I wanted to do, but kind of wanted to be back in food. The thing I liked about fine dining was the precision and the creativity, the artistry of food. And Ron kept telling me, well, there's this restaurant down the street. And it was an issue of the Edible magazine that had a picture of one of the dishes from State and Lemp. And Ron showed me that. And I read the article and I was like, okay, fine, I'll check it out. Did a, uh, a stage there. And I think what I loved about it, what was different was it was such a relaxed environment, a comfortable environment. And I remember the first day, one of the first questions they asked me was, okay, so if there was a zombie apocalypse and you had one kitchen tool to take, what would you choose? And I was like, oh, blowtorch. <laughs> so it, it was just, it was a good place for me to be. And it was a good healing place, I guess, for me to be and to experience fine dining. So we opened in October of 2013. Pretty much immediately, you go through that honeymoon phase of just being a new restaurant, everyone's interested. And then we hit the holidays pretty quickly. And so that that helped and that gave us, at the time it was almost like a false sense of security. And I didn't realize that once school gets out in June, half the town disappears on the weekends. So our difficult time was that first summer. Yeah, that we definitely had some nights where we were cooking for six people, eight people, like not even halfway full. Every seat counted under a magnifying glass, really. What it really took was word of mouth for us, partly because the price went, but also because it was a little bit hard to explain in, say, a newspaper ad or something like that, what we were doing. It took word of mouth to get around because the people that were going to tell their friends about it were excited about what we were doing. And so they were going to tell people that they knew were going to be excited as well. It was really hard to explain what they were doing to people in Boise. They did get some national attention. Chris was nominated for a James Beard Award three years in a row. So that definitely helped with that word of mouth advertising. But many people in Boise didn't have that wider context of what a tasty menu is or why someone would want to spend three hours at dinner. So in the beginning, they tried to ease people in by giving them what they expected. Fancier ingredients. At the beginning, we were just kind of, we were almost going for a value in ingredient by what we thought was expensive. And we thought like, okay, if the guests, if they think that this place is expensive, we'll at least give them ingredients that cost a lot on our end. And that's kind of the value of the place coming in. What we found was it just wasn't possible for us to sustain that. This question of a perceived value of a meal isn't just a thing in Boise. It's a matter of debate regardless of where you are in the U.S. It's really hard to understand all the little things that go into the price of a meal, especially a tasting menu. So we're going to break it down by taking you to dinner at State & Lemp. For two people at State & Lemp, the cost was $210. If you leave a 20% tip and there's a 6% tax, the total comes to $267.12 for two. So how much of that $267.12 was actually going to the restaurant versus paying for everything else associated with the meal? If every seat was full and every guest had wine pairings, 
and essentially tipped 20%, we would bring in roughly $4,000 in a night. Mind you, this includes times where we were actually doing more than five services a week. And this is also art sales and depending on coffee, you know, little things that happened. They were open four days a week, sometimes doing a second service on a Saturday or other special events. So if we break it out to a regular one service, completely full evening, take out the tips that go to the front of house and the taxes they were making. It would roughly come out to about 2,500 bucks a day that we would bring in. The first and most obvious cost associated with restaurants is the food that's on the plate. Each menu had between five to seven courses, so the food cost was right around... Roughly $450. And then the cost of the drinks... Um, so that was about $200. There were five people out in the front of house pouring your wine, bringing you food, each making about $80 that night without the tip. Plus six people in the kitchen, each making somewhere around $95 that day. With all of their wages and salaries for the day, that cost the restaurant... About 900 bucks. We were taking 900 to to $1,000 a day, but it's not actually that that we're taking because that still has to go to all the other things. All those other little things are the kinds of things that people just really don't think about. Menus, linens, candles. Rent, heat, and power, and... It's insurance, it's licensing. Payroll taxes, workers' comp insurance, liability insurance. Credit card fees, permits, liquor licenses. Attorney's fees, good accountant. And all these things just add up like crazy. And that doesn't include when, great, the dishwasher broke down mid-service. So after you add all that up, what's that leave them with? Around $250 in profit a night. Meaning out of the $210 that you spent, after all the costs of running the restaurant, there was $21 left over. In percentage, that's, that's about 10%. So it's not incredibly high. And that $250 essentially is what paid my partner and I. So there was not a lot of money to be made. Restaurants, especially tasty many places, are not particularly profitable businesses. To put it in perspective, a company like Apple has 40% profit margin each quarter. 10% is pretty good for a restaurant. But it doesn't leave a lot of room for error. And when you also have to pay back investors, that $250 a night disappears really quick. You know, there's just so many different things that go into the costing of a meal, not just how much the food costs. You know, when people walk in, they say, oh, I could buy that steak and go and grill it for $14. Why is it $38? Oh, because I got 40 employees and I got this giant restaurant that cost a million dollars to build. So that's why. But we won't be selling any $38 steaks. They'll be $105. <laughs> but you get seven other courses that come with it. Then <laughs> you might not even get a steak. So the team at State & Lemp had to figure out how to control these costs while still giving the guests this perceived value. The first way to do that was to go after the food costs. We've figured out really unique ways to, to use inexpensive foods to make them incredibly fancy or make people feel like they're incredibly fancy. For us, it's kind of a, I don't know if game is even the right word. No, it is kind of a game. 
and I don't know how this is going to be perceived with me saying this out loud, but it's like, how thrifty can we be? And it's not for the sake of being thrifty. The experience is also telling the stories of who we're working with, the farmers, and then the way they grow become part of the meal and the experience that the diner takes away with them. As we met with farmers and things like that, we started to find cuts and ingredients that they needed to push more. And they were willing to kind of give it to us at a slightly cheaper deal because they needed to move it. And then we would take these things that are, were slightly less coveted by other places, and we would have to put the labor into to giving it more value through the work of it. And they had some sort of little mite that was in this carrot field, and it was kind of just, they would burrow on the outside of the carrot, and it would just give this tiny little blemish on it. But it was a lot of them. It was a whole row. And essentially they said, well, the grocery stores won't take it and the farmer's market people won't buy it because it has this blemish on it. But if you just peel through it a little bit deeper, then the carrot itself is, is still really good. So they said, if you come out and you harvest it, you can have it essentially. Otherwise, we're just going to till it under. So we took our crew out and we, we harvested about 700 pounds of carrots ourselves. And then we had all these carrots and we said, okay, well, now we have to do something with it. You know, the go-to, I think, is pickling and fermenting and things like that. And we did it with some of it. And we were like, oh, we still have tons of carrots. So we juiced them. And then that became a cocktail at the bar that was based around the carrot. And then we had this story to go along with it. So it was really cool. The drink was called uh, the moron because uh, moron means carrot in Welsh. It was great. They were able to get their food costs down to 24 or 25% consistently. But even with that consistently at a good percentage, they were still having a hard time. State and Lemp was profitable, but they were struggling with something that every single restaurant struggles with. Paying people. We'll hear more about what they decided to do after a quick break. We put a whole lot of work into these episodes, so much research and interviews, and only a fraction of it makes it onto the show. Ever wonder what happens to the rest? Well, if you go to patreon.com slash copperandheat, you can see. Our patrons giving $5 a month and more get access to some fun special perks like extended interviews and merch, all while supporting the work we do at Copper and Heat. If you can't help us out financially, we totally get it. There are other ways you can help us out too. Like by sharing the show with your friends, your coworkers, your mom, whoever. It really helps us out. Join the Copper and Heat Patreon at patreon.com slash copper and heat. And we're back. The majority of our cost was labor. Our labor costs were incredibly high. And I've been asked that question before. Why are your labor costs so high? This was one of the questions I always got when I was at Manresa where a dinner for one with beverage pairing currently costs $530. Why so expensive? Even if there might be a couple expensive things on the menu, that's not where the money is going. It's going to the people. Think about it. At any given night at State and Lump, there were 24 people dining at the very max, and they had 11 people working. That's basically two diners to every staff member. Plus, the kitchen staff was probably there hours before prepping everything, and that's on a completely full night. It's a lot of labor, and the people that are working are definitely not getting paid a lot for it. I mean, 
to be honest, I for the first three years at State and Lamp, I was only taking home $36,000 a year. $36,000 a year is not enough money when you have two kids and a wife and other things to do. You know, same thing with Chris. Essentially, we saw the last restaurant as our building block. You know, we're going to make these sacrifices because we know this is not the end game. We know we need to move forward onto, onto bigger and better things. This financial sacrifice is something that is expected of people that work in restaurants, especially cooks who don't usually receive tips. It's part of the lifestyle, but it's something that the crew at State & Lemp were really actively thinking about. I never ask for what I'm probably worth. I think employers really like me because I've always been like that. But now that I am the employer and I, I want to pay as best I can because I, I don't want people to go through what I had been through before. We had really good retention for a restaurant. By the end, we had a, a kitchen staff of five people that included one of the owners and myself, or maybe it was six people. But of those four, three of them had been there since the first six months of the restaurant. So they stayed with us for four years and they were great. You know, they, they believed in the culture that we were pushing and the ideas that we wanted to do. But, you know, they were, they were definitely not getting paid as well as they should have. And we were, we were trying to give them raises, but it was a struggle. That goes for myself included. Like I, I just basically didn't get raises through that whole time, even as we grew. So when we stopped and thought about it, we said, okay, well, if we lose a couple of these people just due to them eventually moving on, that's inevitable in a restaurant, what do we do then? And inevitably, that situation did come up, but on a much bigger scale than they were expecting. I was getting kind of bored. and. I started asking the question, so what's going to happen when the lease is up in this building? Because that's, uh, that's about six, seven months out. And I told them, you know, like whatever happens at the end of this lease is when I'm going to be done here. And for me, I, I just had to set this date. But then I feel like that was sort of like I planted a seed in other people's minds. And so then I feel like I feel bad. And I never brought this up with Chris again. Well, pretty much when Michelle was like, when's the lease over? I'm, that's my last day. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, fuck, what are we going to do? <laughs> what do you mean that's your last day? I mean, I thought that we were done. <laughs> and then everyone was like, yeah, I think we should be done. There were quite a few conversations as we drew towards the end of our lease. You know, there was certainly a night or two a week where Chris and I would stay late after everybody was gone and sip on whiskey and talk about the future and talk about, you know, what we could do, not only just the two of us, but, you know, an entire team. An employee that I really cared about a lot wanted a couple of days off and asked when they could do it. and. She said, the reason I need to know so far in advance is because my friend has a real job and she needs to request the time off. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean a real job? What about your job is not a, not a real job? And actually this is a front of the house service staff. So she actually made more money than probably everyone there, me included. I was like, well, you work four days a week. You come into work at 2.30 and you leave at 10.30 every day. And you probably make more money than everyone here including Chris, who works 80 hours a week. So what about that is not a real job? That's one of the things that resonated with me is that so many people in Boise don't necessarily see the restaurant industry 
as a professional industry. They see it as a stopgap or they see it as a place where, you know, it's a college job. By paying more and by offering benefits, I think we can drive that. We can say this is an industry and make doctors and lawyers that come and spend the money respect you like they expect to be respected when you walk into their office. Then we've made then we've made a difference. The idea of restaurant work not being a real job isn't just a Boise thing, but it is more prevalent there because there are just less restaurants. For cooks, that's only a few kitchens where you can go to learn new things before you either open your own thing or go to a bigger city, like I did. I probably would do the same thing. But the problem for us in this town is that if the young, trained-up talent leaves, you're kind of missing everyone in their prime. So it's going to be really important for not only us, but the whole community to kind of raise their games as best they can so that we don't have that citywide loss of employees. And the hope is that the, the restaurants in town are all, you know, everyone's getting a benefit from it. Um, so it's, it's much more of like a communal training session, I think. So for the team at State and Lemp, they started really thinking about what the end goal was. And if one of those goals was to raise the bar in Boise, that meant giving their employees value in their jobs, value beyond a paycheck. Towards the end of Satan Lemp, we were in this really great position of, we had about six or seven dishes on a menu and we would change them every three or four weeks and we would do one-off menus and things like that. So we were going through a lot of dishes and at a certain point, you get like creative writer's block, right? Or I would, and, and what was great was because we had a staff that had been there for so long and that they knew my food in and out, what we started to do was say, okay, there's five dishes, there's five of us. We were able to give them the reins to a certain degree. One of our youngest cooks, he's great and he's gonna be a really good chef. He, he started at first just, just going and we would kind of let him run with it for a little bit. And then every time we'd have to pull him back and say like, okay, man, we need to sit down because you need to understand that if you do this dish, you're taking up 50% of our budget on one dish. And he'd be like, oh, okay, you know, and like kind of rework it, you know? And then the next menu, it would come back and we would be like, all right, like pretty sure we had this conversation, but you're now at 60% of our budget. <laughs> it took a couple runs. And then he immediately started talking about, okay, this is how I want the dish to eat. And this is how, like, I want the guests to, to realize it. And then this is also why financially I made this decision. And it was like, oh, this is perfect, man. Like, you hit another level in terms of how you were perceiving these dishes. When I first started cooking in, in the chef position, the finances were not my priority. As I've gotten more experience, you do start to realize that you know, really the financials are, are floating the whole thing. They're the most important thing to look at, but it, it just kind of depends on how you, how you do look at them. A lot of cooks or in any position, you don't necessarily know the reasoning for the decision made directly above you and, and you know, kind of goes up the ladder. So I think what's important for, for us as, in terms of our restaurant is we are very open with our, all of our employees about how our finances work so that they understand their value. As young cooks, you learn, you know, braising, saute, you like, you learn the techniques, you learn how to butcher and things like that. But there's, there's not enough places that teach them the financial side of things as well. All of that information just helps them understand the business as a whole, and then they can find greater value in working in that place. 
think it was the last service at State and Lemp is when I pulled uh, Chris and Ramey both separately aside and told them, okay, I'm on board. I mean, there there was a moment, uh, I was kind of going through a midlife crisis and I came out of a doctor's appointment just in tears and I called Chris and told him like, I I don't think I can do this. Like, this is me putting in my, my notice, whatever that looks like right now, because I don't really have a, a regular job. But, you know, I don't know if I can continue this. And I continue to wrestle with, uh, or at that time was like wrestling with, do I do I want to do this? And I think what helped me to get back to this place of wanting to do it was there wasn't ever a point when Chris pressured me like, no, but you have to do this. You signed on. You said you would. But it was like, you know, I care about you and like whatever is best for you. And each of them continuing to be with me and walk alongside me and in a hard time of life. That's what makes me want to continue to be a part of Kin. Kin is the new restaurant that Chris and Ramey are opening together, with a lot of the original State and Lemp crew coming along, including Michelle. The decision came down to the fact that with a small 24-seat restaurant, there was never going to be enough capacity to bring in the revenue they needed to do all the things they wanted to do, like pay people more or expand the menu. So Ramey and his previous partner, Jay, sold State and Lemp to another owner in 2018. We definitely needed to step outside of our small space and create a larger revenue stream. In most restaurants, that means adding a bar and adding liquor. Ended up in a space that we didn't anticipate. It's an iconic Boise location on 9th and Main. It's essentially underground, but it has an open-air courtyard and patio and amphitheater. So we will have a bar. We'll have a 64-seat bar. We'll have a 30-seat tasting menu restaurant. And then attached to that, we'll have a 24-seat private lounge for those guests specifically. We will also have a patio, and then we will have a amphitheater where we can do concerts or plays or dance. Um, so we kind of have four restaurants, five restaurants in one location. You know, people see us doing this and say, wow, you know. They went from having a 24-seat restaurant to having a 6,600-square-foot restaurant. What are they going to do? What are these guys doing? (laughs) They've lost it. It's definitely a big jump from the small bootstrap project that was State & Lemp. It's an expensive game when you step in and play with the big boys, for sure. First, the kin space is just so much bigger than the state and lump space. Plus, it's in another building with other owners, so all construction needs to be done by licensed contractors rather than friends and family. And as usual with opening a new place, there are all the unexpected costs. You know, people tell you all the time, oh, it's going to cost twice as much and take twice as long. I never really believed it, but I don't think it costs twice as much and takes twice as long, but it costs more and it takes longer. And we also found a lot of different things in that building. The building is totally beat. The restaurant space hadn't been renovated for 40 plus years. When Jane Ramey opened State and Lump, they did it with 80K and help from friends and family. But this time, Ramey and Chris have to approach it differently. They had to find money somewhere else. 
We raised $1 million from private equity partners who will own 49% of the restaurant. We own 51%, Chris and I. And we will pay that back at 8% with 70% of the profits going to the investors until their principal is paid back. And then we will receive 80% of the profits and they will receive 20% of the profits for the life of the restaurant or until we buy them out. So it's a, it's a bunch of lawyery stuff. Right now, Boise is at a bit of a crossroads. For a long time, young people were leaving for experiences in bigger cities, myself included. The dining scene had a lot of the same kinds of restaurants, but now things are changing. People like Michelle are in search of a chill lifestyle and somewhere they can actually afford, and people with big city experiences are moving in and opening places. So as Boise is growing and changing, one of the questions is what happens to the food scene? Making the move to downtown, you know, we've been very welcoming to to all the other restaurateurs and they're very welcoming to us. We don't see it as competition, we see it as camaraderie. And that's been that's been really refreshing and that's maybe one thing that makes Boise a unique space and a unique city. You don't see that cutthroat business mentality that you may see in a larger city. So people do really get excited about a new space. We used to hear, uh, and still do at times, oh, this is this is good for Boise. But there's been a shift like, oh, no, this is, this is just good food. Like, we just want to make good food. And so from both the perspective of people who work in the industry and the diners themselves, people are just coming to expect good and not good enough. Boise is a great place for for me personally and and the culture of the restaurant that we're developing because you know we're we're friendly I, I would say I'm like borderline just too naive about a lot of the things and a lot of the goals that we want but it does fit into the community because we do want to support each other in a lot of ways the kin thing is not just our employees and us it's it's the immediate community as well There's still a lot of quirky charm about Boise. And right now we're in this conversation of where do we go from here with food culture? What does food culture here look like? We don't want to become the next whatever city. We don't want to you know, do something because this is the trend that's happening somewhere else. But that's, that's Boise culture, you know, come as you are. This is 2022 Katie again. Kin did end up opening in 2020, doing all sorts of different takeout and outdoor events for the Boise community. But what also happened during the pandemic is that Boise went through a lot of changes. As people moved out of bigger cities and were looking for places to live, Boise became a hotspot. Boise was already a growing city pre-2020, but during the pandemic, the cost of living and real estate and housing skyrocketed as more people moved there. So the crossroads that I referenced during the episode three years ago has been exacerbated by the pandemic. And the Boise restaurant community is really trying to define itself as more out-of-state real estate developers and business owners try to make Boise more like other big cities. So Ramey, Chris, and Michelle are all still at Kin, still doing some really cool things. They have their tasting menu room, as Remy mentioned in the episode, where they can do their more experimental menus. They have their bar that serves funky bar snacks, cocktails, and occasionally they'll do some special menu items like ramen. 
and they have their patio where they do different music, dance, and other performances. It's a really fun space in the heart of downtown Boise. And they're continuing to try to push the culture of their restaurant to bring value to their employees and have that conversation of professionalism in the Boise restaurant industry. You can follow Kin on social at kin underscore Boise to follow along with all the cool things that they're doing. You can follow us in your favorite podcast app and find us on various social channels at Copper and Heat to keep up to date as we release the new episodes throughout the season. And we always love hearing from you, so send us a message in our DMs or on our website. This episode was produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Rachel Palmer. Scoring, sound design, and story editing was by Ricardo Osuna. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>